there's something beautiful about lifting up our voices to the Lord and then encouraging one another as we sing together. Let's go to our Heavenly Father once more in prayer this morning. Oh, great God, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to gather and to sing your word, to pray your word, to read your word, and to now come to the preaching of the word. Father, Lord, we pray, Lord, that your word would go forth and feed our souls, that it would taste as sweet as honey as we open and unfold your living word. Lord, help the word do what a sword does and cut in our hearts to expose sin that needs exposed, to cut our hearts where we have not loved you or others like we are called to. Lord, help even cut where we have missed the purpose and point of life. Will you do this work in us this morning? Father, we also uh, want to pray not only for our church for these things to take place, but for our, our sister church in Carlisle First Baptist Church and their pastor, Scott Broughton. Father, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would do the same work uh, there this morning as we pray that you do here. God, be with our sister church, help build them up, and help them to encourage and stir one another up this morning as they gather. Father, Lord, we also want to echo this prayer for the Hills Community Church in San Marcos, California, where our church planner Brian Jones and his wife Amy are. Father, Lord, we pray that there you will continue to help uh, Brian and, and the Hills Community Church there to reach the lost. Lord, you have uh, strategically planted this church there for uh, the purpose of reaching this community with the gospel. So, Father, we pray that that gospel would go out there and uh, do a mighty work, that many would come to know Christ, uh, especially those who have yet to even hear. God, we pray that they will work in close partnership if there are any other like-minded evangelical churches there. Father, help them to labor together for your honor and glory. Father, we also want to pray for our missionaries around the world. Lord, we want to pray this morning for uh, the Lomwe people in Malawi and Mozambique. Lord, in particular, as uh, it is baptism season there, Lord, where many are being able to be uh, immersed in the water, Lord, identifying publicly with Christ for the first time. Lord, it's on the end of rainy season, Lord, where the waters are not too rough and yet where they're still high enough to baptize. So uh, this is why it, it is known as baptism season there. Father, Lord, we, we pray, Lord, for these new converts, these new believers. Lord, help them to grow in their discipleship. Help them to grow and understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. Lord, help uh, those who are older and more mature in the faith, invest in these new believers, Lord, so that they are not swept away by the cares of the world. Father, Lord, will you do this in the, these new believers, these new brothers and sisters of ours in Christ, in which we are united to because we are one in Christ. And Father, Lord, again, we just pray now for our church as we open your word here. Will your spirit move? as only you can. We ask and we pray this in the name of Christ our King. Amen. If you've not figured out, I'm a good old country boy. I was born and raised in Soddy Daisy, Tennessee. You can't get much more country than saying you're from Soddy Daisy. 
It's two towns combined in one is the smallness of these towns. And growing up in a small town, you do what all good old country boys do. You grow up listening to country music. In particular, there was a song growing up uh, by Faith Hill called The Secret of Life. You know, it's interesting that you have to have a country song for that. I love country music because it, it really does relate to a lot of life, oftentimes wrongly with, with a little bit of, of a wrong worldview, but there is a lot of relatable to it. In particular, this song, in the final chorus, it goes like this. The secret of life is a good cup of coffee. The secret of life is keep your eye on the ball. The secret of life is the right woman. The secret of life is nothing at all. This is, is the contemplation between uh, two men uh, the song is talking about it, as they're contemplating what is the secret of life. Uh, they're sitting there in a bar and uh, the bartender is interacting with them on trying to find out what is this secret of life. But you know what's interesting is each and every one of us also wrestles with this very question. We often try to pursue what is the secret of life? What is the point of life? What is it that we're missing and trying to find? We don't have it, so we pursue and chase and toil after in hopes that we might one day gain it. And yet often, actually most of the time, we miss the secret of life because we're looking in the wrong place. We're looking at what's next versus the end. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning as we begin our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead, whether it's physical copy, the pew Bible, or digital copy, open up to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. You've got Proverbs, or Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. So open up about the middle, turn a little bit towards the end, and, and you should come to Ecclesiastes. This is a, a random book. I've heard even many of you, as I talked about this series coming, that Ecclesiastes is a hard book to understand. It's a hard book to grasp, one uh, that really struggle with or, or have never studied. So I, my hope is, as we study this book, we can gain a little bit of wisdom in how to live our life, how to actually find the secret of life, but in a bizarre and strange way. Ecclesiastes, along with Proverbs and Psalms and Song of Solomon and the book of Job, make up the wisdom literature. These books help us understand how to live life in different areas. The Psalms help us uh, relate in a, in a variety of heart, heart issues and uh, address different things through song. Proverbs is little bits of tidbit of wisdom uh, broken up. So if you've ever studied the book of Proverbs, it's constant wisdom, 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 but about different aspects of life. Job is about going through life and suffering. Ecclesiastes is very different though. Ecclesiastes seems very morbid. It seems like, wait, all is vanity? That's kind of the point of Ecclesiastes. It's pointing out all is vanity to help us actually learn to live. And that's where we're going to turn here in Ecclesiastes 1, beginning in verse 1. So will you follow along with me as I read here in Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11 this morning? Hear the word of the Lord. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around uh, around and around, or goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. If I have rightly studied this text this week, the main point of the text, and therefore the main point of the sermon, is this. There is no gain in our striving for purpose under the sun, the S-U-N. For in the end, we all die. Therefore, let us behold our God and enjoy him forever. For this is the meaning of life. We're going to look at this in four points. I'm going to give you the first three now, and we'll give you the fourth as we come to it. Point number one, all is vanity. Point number two, life is repetitive. Point number three, living in the light of the end. So let's look at all is vanity. Just a, a warning ahead of time. Most of the time, sermons are packed with application as we go. However, because of the nature of Ecclesiastes, none of the application would make sense until the end. So if you're looking for the application to come, it will come but it's going to come in that final point. So let's begin diving in and trying to understand and grasp Ecclesiastes. Point number one, all is vanity. We see here Ecclesiastes in verse one opens, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Historically, this has always been credited to Solomon being the one who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. In uh, later times, though, there has been some uh, questioning. Was it indeed Solomon that wrote this book? Some have said that the Hebrew here in Ecclesiastes is, is older or would have been uh, past Solomon's time, that it was more like 10th century versus uh, in the days of Solomon. Whatever the case... We, we know the author addresses themselves, the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is why I still think it's Solomon. Uh, one, because in, in chapter 12 and 9, we see besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. There's no other king that was wiser than Solomon. The kings of Israel did good in the sight of the Lord and evil in the sight of the Lord, and yet none of them compared to Solomon. So at the very least, if this is not Solomon, then the author is being portrayed as Solomon-like. So at the very least, this is pointing. I share this because one, 
I want us to be aware of what the word says, what it goes on behind the scenes, who actually wrote this. But indeed, whatever and whoever the author is, the point of using the preacher is, here we have one as a king-like person in Israel proclaiming God's word to shepherd the people, to point them here to actually what we find out is the meaning of life. They're trying to shepherd the sheep of Israel in a king-like manner in proclamation. Here is what it means to live. And that's what we see even as it goes into verse two. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. This word vanity is an interesting word. There's multiple different takes of how, how this should be translated. But I, there, there's some that say this is meaningless, pointless, but yet that's not the point of Ecclesiastes. It's not saying that all of life is meaningless and pointless. Otherwise, what's the point of being here? But it is saying that all toil under the sun is vanity, mainly because it is as a vapor. It's as a mist. Vanity means a vapor amidst. It's passing by quickly. Some have even translated along the lines of deceptive gain. And I think it's somewhere in between this is how we should take this word vanity. As a vapor amidst. It's kind of like the, the car that comes flying past us like a maniac. We see it in our rearview mirror and next thing we know it's out of sight. That's how fast our lives go. This is why all is vanity because it passes like a vapor. So therefore, when we come to verse three, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? It's pointless to toil and to strive because of the fact of life goes by so fast. I think of our almost two-year-old and just like, how in the world is she almost two? Life has come by so fast. And I'm sure all of us can relate in some way, in some shape and form. Whether it's our own lives, we look and be like, wow, how am I to this point in life? Or how are my children or grandchildren to the age they are? Why? Because life flies by. It comes and it goes. It's here today and gone tomorrow. This is why we begin with this idea of vanity all is vanity because of the quick paceness of life. But then again, the question is here asked in verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? If all is vanity and it meaning all, then what point is there to toil under the sun? Is there actually any gain from it? Well, that's what the rest of our text begins to answer in particular here in verses 4 through 11. But we need to see that there really is no gain in all that toil. It seems as gain. We chase after desires. We chase after fame. We chase after all of these things to fulfill us. And yet in the end, is there any true gain? We achieve something and then we're left wanting more. We toil after these and yet are still constantly unsatisfied and unfulfilled. So the question still at hand, is there actually gain? The gain we think we have is deceitful in the end. All that effort, all that energy, all that toil, 
slips through our hands. We think we have it. We think we've achieved it. And yet there it goes like sand between our fingers. It's deceitful gain, all that toil. Why? Well, that's where we turn in our second point. Life is repetitive. Here in answer, beginning to answer the question of uh, what is their gain, it says there in verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Here the earth is stated as constant, remaining forever. And we see this even in the following verses of verses 5 through 7. For in verse 5, we see the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Just this morning, the sun rose and it's rising even now to close to the point of reaching its highest point. And then we'll soon in a few hours begin to go down and eventually set. But what does it do after it sets? It chases its tail right back to the place it rises again and again. There's repetition in the daily of life. As the life goes on forever, there, there's a repetitiveness to how it functions. We see this even in, in the next verse. In verse 6 there, it says, The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. Even the wind is a repetitive nature. Just think of, of the few weeks ago when all those wind storms came through and the wind was howling like crazy. And now it almost seems to have been gone the last two days. And then it'll return again. Life is repetitive. The wind comes and goes around and around. Creation itself shows us this repetitiveness even as the, as the earth goes on forever. But it doesn't stop there. It continues here uh, with the illustration of uh, verse 7. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. You know, here being near the uh, Mississippi River, we see the Mississippi River run to the Gulf. We see it pour into the Gulf. It, it's hard for us to picture the fullness of, of this weight of this because the ocean is so big. And yet as the Mississippi River, as mighty as it, it is, pours into the Gulf, we never think, where does all that water go? But for a Middle Eastern Jew, growing up in their culture, they were used to the Jordan River. The Jordan River runs into the Dead Sea. This powerful river runs into the Dead Sea. And it has no outlets. And yet, as it constantly flows into this Dead Sea, not even the Dead Sea fills up and overflows and wipes out the lands around. Sure, there might be some occasional flooding, but nothing massive. Here is the picture of being painted by this illustration. It's saying that here, the river of the, the Jordan River flows into this sea, the, this body of water that's contained, no outlet, and yet it never fills up, but yet constantly is pouring into it. That's amazing for one, just in thinking about it, how the world works. And yet there's the repetitiveness of it. Over and over again, the sea is dumping in. 
We see all throughout creation that it repeats itself time and time again. You know, even thinking about our own country, thinking of hurricane season when it comes or tornado season, it's timely as we think about it. We know here it comes March, it's time again to go through that. Or here it is January, February, it's time for expecting that one massive snowstorm or or wherever we're at. For my in-laws living up in, in the north woods of Wisconsin, they can tell about November, snow's here for good for the winter and might not be gone uh, until May, possibly. At least that was the year uh, when we got married, it was the case. There's seasons of repetitiveness, and we can predict it. It just keeps cycling around and around. But not only is it this case for creation, it's this way for us as man. We see here as we go into verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. As the world goes around, so do our lives. Our life is repetitive. Even as we begin to explore more and more of the world, as technology has advanced, we've put man on the moon, we've explored other uh, planets, and yet there's still a want to explore further and further into the galaxy. There, there's, we're not satisfied with just exploring the moon. We want to explore planets. Now that we've explored a few planets by technology, we want to explore uh, the greater universe. But what then? One of, one of the things I thought of as thinking about Ecclesiastes and the way we toil and strive is relationships. The single person thinks that if they're only married, things will be better. Then they get married and, and find out different, or, or there's still a greater want and desire. Marriage is a good thing, and yet marriage will not be what satisfies that single person. Then the, the married couple decides, oh, you know, now we want children, and if we just have children, this is what satisfies. And then that child comes, you, you love that little one, and yet you find out it's hard work being a parent. You chase, you toil, you have to, to run after them. You know what? I, I can't wait till they can drive on their own or, or you know, leave the house so that we can be empty nesters and, and have a little bit more us time and do the things we want to do. And then that time comes and, oh, you miss them. You're not satisfied. You want something else. Now all there's left is you and your spouse and, and work. So maybe when we get to retirement, we'll, we'll reach that good place. We'll reach that place of just constant happiness, and we'll have all of our dreams. You're retired now. What in the world do I do with my time? This isn't as satisfying as I thought it was. What now? You see, we, we constantly have these things we chase and toil after, thinking that's what's going to satisfy, and yet it leaves us unsatisfied. It leaves us longing for something more. And this is just the good things let alone the bad things. Ecclesiastes points us constantly over and over again to the pointlessness of all this toil for these things. Why? Because we need to see the reality of this endless and pointless toil, that it's vanity, it's as a vapor, it's deceitful gain. We think we gain by all this toil 
And yet in the end, it does not satisfy. We are left constantly toiling after these things. We store them up, thinking we've got it. And then in the end, it proves futile. The pattern of life is like chasing, or the the same pattern of life and chasing after the sun has always been. And this is what we must see. We're not the only ones in history who have chased after these things under the sun. We toil and toil, and yet, what do we have to truly show it? Sure, there's new technology. Sure, there's advances. There's certain things that weren't here a generation or two ago. We think in our time, uh, in my childhood, seeing the internet come of age, the internet wasn't around when most, most of us in here were children. And yet it's come and taken over. We hadn't been on the moon until the 60s. We hadn't had a lot of things. We hadn't had social media until as of recent years. And yet there's a toil even in that of putting on something that we're not. We think of of how we use social media to uh, paint the best part of our lives, to to put out there the best of our lives. So other people are, are toiling, striving, thinking, man, they've got it all together. They've got it all figured out. Everything's easy for them. What that person doesn't know is they don't see the other side of it. They begin wanting to chase that perfection that we paint through social media and yet come to find out they're left unsatisfied as they chase because they don't see that we too also struggle with that same toil, that same struggle, that same lacking. All of this toil after all of these things will constantly leave us unsatisfied. But the reminder here is even as we begin to think, maybe there's something else out there, maybe there's something new, we need to see that there is nothing new under the sun. In verse 9, it says, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is nothing new under the sun. There's no more things we can explore to get a better hold and grasp on life. There's nothing new under the sun when it regards human sinfulness and brokenness. There's the old saying that... um, in looking at it that, you know, if we only lived in a different time, things would be easier or things seem to be getting worse by now. And yet the reality is none of this is new. The things we see in our day and time are the same things that have been existing just in different ways all throughout the world and throughout its history. The same hot button sins that we talk about today have existed from the very beginning uh, since the fall. We saw after the flood, Noah get off the ship and find himself drunken. Drunkenness has always existed. We see the issues of, of sexual immorality. Where was David when he was not where he was supposed to be? What was he doing? He was sinning with adultery. 
and sexual immorality. We see that of homosexuality, and all we need to do is go back to Genesis 12, uh, 8, 19 and 20, and that of Sodom and Gomorrah. When Abraham prayed and interceded for that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lord, just spare them if there's, there's 40 and there's 30 and there's 10. Spare them. And all that was found was Lot and his family. And as the angels went to spare Lot to rescue him, what did the city of Sodom do? They pressed against the door and said, bring the two men out so that we may know them. And the grotesqueness of homosexuality and rape. These are the same sins the world has always struggled with, and yet we think somehow they're hot topic or new that our generation is alone in fighting these. The same struggles of sin have always been around the world. And yet, despite all of that repetitiveness of sin and nature, in the midst of our brokenness, God has continued to work. He has saved the least of these, the most broken we need to remember, though, that there indeed is nothing new under the sun in which we can chase and toil after. To either change the world, to think that we can have a better hold and grasp of it, that we can somehow replace God as we learn more of the earth and, and have a better handle on it. All of these things will continue over and over again. As one generation goes and the next comes, the same sins will be present, the same brokenness. Because the reality of earth is not to see that a generation improves, it's to see our desperate need in Christ. Sin will continue. And yet, there's hope, even as sin continues to repeat itself again and again. Brothers and sisters, we need to see the futility of this world. We need to understand the repetitiveness of this nature, not so that we can be discouraged, so that we can actually see how to live. It, you see, this is, is why Ecclesiastes is so important. If we just simply continue chasing after these same old things, thinking somehow we're going to make a difference, somehow things are going to be different in our generation, we're failing to see the reality of it all. The reality of life is not for us to make a name for ourselves. It's not for us to be the ones that make the story of change. It's to show we are a broken people, and yet despite that brokenness, despite that sin, there's one bigger who has come. There's one bigger who's pursued us in the midst of this ongoing repetitiveness of sin. One of the beautiful things about the Old Testament, being, being an Old Testament guy, I love reading the Old Testament. I love studying it. But it gives me great hope as I look to Israel and see, man, why don't they get it? And then realize I'm Israel. I'm the ones that doesn't understand, I'm the one who continues to struggle and to worship my God the way I'm called to. I'm the one who's blinded. And this is what Ecclesiastes is trying to sum up and point us to. The reality of this endless, pointless toil after the things under the sun, the S-U-N. 
It's showing us the futility, the vanity of it all, so that we can actually learn to live. And that's where I want to turn in our third point this morning, living in light of the end. So we see all is vanity. We see that death is our end because as one generation comes, the other will go. Friends, death is the end for us all. We all are here today and will be gone tomorrow. No matter Christian or non-Christian, death is the end in this life. There's two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. We know taxes have already come and death will come soon. This is the reality. This is the end. But in light of that, we can actually set our sights on that end and begin to live. Because we realize to be human is to be finite. We are not infinite people. We are not eternal people in our flesh. Our bodies will die, they will decay, and it'll come again for the next generation and over and over and over again. The earth will continue to repeat. And yet, as we see the fact that we're physical humans, as as finite creatures, we can begin to see our need in something greater. Because instead of chasing after our, our own fame, our own glory, and thinking somehow that it will last we can begin to see our need to live for God. But let me back up for a moment. There in verse 11, we see there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. In order for us to grasp the fact of the fullness of our finite being, we need to also see that we will not be remembered. There's families in this church that are four and five generations deep with with family members alive. That's awesome when we see that. When we see that many generations alive together at the same time, it, it is a neat thing because it's rare. But I want each of us to think, can we think back to six generations, for that matter, five generations behind us, who is our great, great, great grandparents? For that matter, can most of us think of who our great-great-grandparents are? Very few, I'm guessing. The reality is, we are here today, gone tomorrow. We will not be remembered, just as we can't even remember that of our own family members. Again, this seems morbid, but yet it's calling us to wake up and to see what it is we're chasing after. We're finite. We're not going to be remembered. So what is the point of trying to make a name for ourselves as we live? What's the point of trying to to store all these things up to think we're going to somehow be great? Do you know that most uh, of the celebrities in our culture struggle more with depression than we do? They've got the fame. They've got the money. They've got the means. And yet they still are lacking. They feel themselves lacking because they are chasing after the toil under the sun. And it leaves them in despair. Because they think, what now? I've got it all. What now? What's the point? Well, the point is we're not meant to live 
under the sun, the S-U-N. We're meant to live under the sun, the S-O-N. We're meant to live in enjoying and delighting in God who created us to be dependent upon Him. We were intended in creation to be eternal people, to live forever. And yet because of the fall, we are left broken and death is the end. This is the effect of sin. And yet there is rich hope. But unless we understand the state of our bodies, that death is coming, then we cannot live to that end. We can't live towards the end of being united with Christ for all eternity. We can't live to the end of being with our Heavenly Father forever unless we first see the fact of the end. Life circles around. Just as a new generation comes, our generations will soon find themselves on the way out. This should wake us up to see what are we living for. We must live towards this end because it's this end where we begin to see our mortality and our need of rescue. When we realize that we too will die, we begin to be awoken and see we need rescued. We need rescued in Christ. We need rescued from this sin, from this curse that we are under. We see the fact that God has pursued us even as we repeat ourselves in this folly, in this toil. He still comes after us. He comes after us so much that he sends his son to lay down his life as an offering. To be pierced on the cross, to cover our sins, to rescue us from that sin. But not only that, does he rises three days later, defeating death. And in his return, death will be no more. The end will no longer be death. But it will be before the eternal God. The question for us all is, do we see that is the end? Therefore, why do we keep toiling after the things under the sun, the S-U-N, instead of toiling after the things of the sun, the S-O-N. We must see that this is our end, and therefore it should change the pattern of how we live. In the Westminster Catechism, in the first one question, it says, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let me repeat that. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If we see the end is death in this life, we can begin to actually live instead of chasing after pleasures in this world, we begin chasing after God and learning to live life in Him, to enjoy God, to glorify Him. When we see the end is death, we can actually begin, instead of fearing death, to embrace death like an old friend. Because we begin to see like Paul did in Philippians 1.21 that death is actually gain. 
Now, we don't go running towards death, but we do greet it when it comes. Because to depart is to be with Christ, the very one who rescued us, who saved us, who redeemed us. But again, unless we understand what the end is, we can't see the beauty of the end. We can't see the beauty of departing from this world, from this repetitive, sinful, broken world, and to be with our Savior forever and ever. This is the promise that we have stored up for us in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you do not know this hope, the same hope is being extended to you even now. The hope of the gospel is there for all who would turn from their sin and come to Jesus. For his blood was shed, not just for us who are already Christians, but for those who have yet to come to him. All they need to do is come. Friend, today is the day of salvation. Come to Jesus, place your faith in him. But Christians, let us see that whatever we toil after under the sun is going to be vanity. Let us begin to live in light of this end so that we can enjoy life to its fullness, that we can enjoy God in all his glory. David Gibson in his uh, book, Living Life Backwards, says, Ecclesiastes invites us to let the end sculpt our priorities and goals, our greatest ambitions, and our strongest desires. Therefore, as we study and continue our study, the book of Ecclesiastes, may we begin living light in light of this end and our priorities and goals be reshaped as we think about our finite lives. Let us beginning to live in light of this end. But how do we do that? And that's where I want to take us in this fourth and final point this morning. Just four quick things I want to point out of application to help us to begin living in light of the end. Living in light of the end starts with us seeing that our chief end as man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God in our lives and all that we do. This is our aim. This is the purpose of our life. We're to glorify God and enjoy God in all that we do. If we're chasing after anything else, if we're toiling after anything else, it is pointless. It is vanity. And yet, even as we read earlier in the scripture reading from 1 Timothy 4, godliness is of great value and eternal gain. To toil after that is what our very lives are meant to do. So to live in light of the end, we toil after godliness. Secondly, we need to see the reality that death is gain for us who are in Christ. We need to live our lives in such a way that we do not fear death itself, but that we embrace it like an old friend when it comes. Because the end of the matter is not that we just go and, and our bones are in the grave, but that we depart to be with Christ forever and ever. Let us see this is truly gain, that this is gain because we leave this sinful, broken body and all of its aches and pains and all of its problems and our constant struggle with sin. 
to be glorified with Christ forever and ever. We are one with our Savior, our bridegroom. We go running to him as his bride. We need to see to live is Christ and to die is gain. Thirdly, we can live in light of the end by holding things loosely in this world. Brothers and sisters, as we will see in Ecclesiastes, not having things is is not the point of Ecclesiastes. We can have possessions. We can have different gifts the Lord provides and blesses each each of us with, and we can enjoy them. But the point of Ecclesiastes is to show that we need to hold these loosely. We need to hold things of this world with a loose hand from possessions to that of family, all of it. We hold loosely because none of it lasts. Our toil after these things will not last. We need to see what is eternal, that of our souls. That's what matters. And that's what we need to hold tightly too. Our possessions will rust. They will decay. We will lose loved ones. But what lasts is Christ. Therefore, we need to hold tightly to him and loosely to the things of this world. Fourthly, we live in light of the end by toiling towards a legacy greater than that of ourselves. If we try to live to make a name for ourselves, we will soon be forgotten. But as we've been talking about on Sunday night, over the last six times we have gathered, or five times, and then tonight will be the sixth, is a great commission study, making disciples. The greatest legacy we can leave is to pour into others, to point them to Christ. If we try to make a name for ourselves and being uh, the, the first man or woman to do something, it will quickly be forgotten. Very few are remembered throughout history. Even of the great American presidents, how many of us could go through and name every one of them? We quickly forget things. Therefore, if we try to make our end goal by making a name, we too will find ourselves forgotten. But let us invest in making disciples, in pouring into others, in pointing them to Christ, because that legacy will last. Not our names, but the glory and honor of helping others to follow Jesus, learning to delight in him, will last forever. Therefore, let our lives be poured out in such a way that we make a lasting legacy in making disciples, other followers of Jesus, so that others down the road can come to Jesus and still others yet. We are here today because brothers and sisters gave their lives for the sake of the gospel in sharing it. We would not be standing where we are today without the boldness uh, of guys like Martin Luther in standing against the hypocrisy of the Pope and the tradition of the Catholic Church. We are here today because those early Christians gave up their lives for the sake of the gospel. If the end is what's coming, Let us live in light of that as we pour out our lives, not toiling under the sun, the S-U-N, but toiling under the sun, 
the S-O-N. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our time this morning. Father, we pray, Lord, that you will continue to draw us near to yourself. That we will live and be a people that live in light of the end. Help us to glorify and honor you. Help us to enjoy you, Father. So that we may live in a way that brings glory to your name. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.